I just draw a box around the kind of life that I want. As soon as work stuff goes outside of that box, I just have a blanket note. I don't have to follow this defined default path, which is that you work really hard and then you retire when you're 65. What does it mean to change your life? Usually what it means is that you've achieved some sort of outcome that you've been working towards. Often it takes a split second to make a decision. Some might say it takes two minutes to make a decision. The right decision can change your life. I'm your host, Sarah Ann Macklin, and I'm on a mission to uncover the maze of health myths around nutrition and well-being, and guide you through my seven pillars of health. Join me on a journey of discovery and connection, and put up a pew for a front row seat to the most exclusive health conversations of our time. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well. Ali Abdul is the most followed productivity expert in the world, with over 5 million subscribers on YouTube. His new book, Feel Good Productivity, is a New York Times and Sunday Times bestseller. But first, I ask Ali, amongst all of his success that he's had, what is the one thing that he still struggles with? There's two things that come to mind, really. <laughs> one is health-related stuff. So I'd love to talk to you about that. Um, I actually did a gym session earlier today because like one of my goals for 2024 is to get into the best shape of my life. Um, but like staying consistent with health has mm -hmm. been surprisingly hard mm -hmm. or, or weirdly hard. And the other thing is like, I feel like my whole thing is like feel good productivity. And I find myself not wanting to do things that I don't like doing. <laughs> and I think this is, yeah, you know, even, we, even with all the stuff that I've read about productivity and writing a book about it, it's just really hard to get yourself to do something that you don't, you don't like doing. Mm -hmm. And so my team will sometimes joke about this, be like, you know, Ali's got stuff on his calendar and he says he's going to do the thing, but he's, he doesn't actually do the thing. So there's this sense of like, I really struggle with following through on stuff unless the thing is fun, in which case I'll just do it and mm -hmm. I'll have a great time doing it. Mm -hmm. And if it's not fun, I'll try and find a way to make it fun. But even then, there are things we have to do that are not fun some of the time. And for those things, I continue to procrastinate on. What are they? I really want to know what they are. So when it came to book writing stuff, there were aspects of like the editing process that I didn't quite enjoy. Mm -hmm. Where I was like, okay, you know, the research was really fun and putting it all together. But now I have to cut out like half of what I've written. Okay, that seems kind of hard. Um, if it's like working with our team and it's like, um, you know, our social media team has written stuff and I need to approve it. Or if it's anything to do with admin, like filling out forms or anything. And I have an assistant to delegate stuff for that. But, like, you know, sometimes there are forms and contracts I have to read through that need my personal signature. And I'm like, I should probably mm -hmm. read through this. And then it stays in the inbox for, like, weeks at a time mm -hmm. until I get the nudges on Slack, like, repeatedly. Like, it needs to go in today. It needs to go in today. So for those sorts of things, yeah, I don't really get around to doing them because there's always something more interesting yeah. that I feel like I could be doing. Well, you have a lot on. Yeah, but I guess everyone does, don't they? Like, <laughs> I, don't think any, I don't think anyone listening to this will feel as if they don't have a lot on. <laughs> but, yeah, that's the, that's the weird part. Well, I think you wrote something in your book. I mean, you wrote a lot in your book, but something that really stood out to me was success doesn't lead to feeling good. Feeling good leads to success. Now, this is really entwined with what you're telling me, that mm. actually the things that you're leaning into are the things that you're flourishing in, okay? Yeah. And when I read that, I really tried to kind of analyze, you know, actually, and I've analyzed this as part of my goals going forward this year. Like, what are the things that I enjoy spending my time on? What are the things that I enjoyed not spending my time on last year and how can I reverse and look at that? How did you kind of come to that realisation when you were writing it? Was there any kind of hard learnings that made you realise actually feeling good is the way to success? Yeah. So initially when I started writing the book, it was it was a very different book. It was called The Productivity Equation. And I was mm -hmm. like, you know what? I'm writing a book. I want to make this highbrow. I want to have like loads of research. And I came up with this like equation for productivity and stuff and kind of worked on that for a whole year. And then... I showed that book proposal to a guy called David, who's from New York, who worked with James Clear on Atomic Habits on, on the proposal. Amazing. 
And he looked at that and he was like, this stinks. It's not going to sell. And I was like, what? <laughs> I spent a whole year working on this. And he was like, it's too complicated, man. Like, no one wants to read a book called The Productivity Equation. It's <laughs> like, okay. And he was like, look, just tell me this. Like, you know, you've had all the success. You were a doctor, you're a YouTuber, blah, 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 business, all that kind of stuff. If you had to boil it down to just one phrase, what's your secret? Like, what were you doing that other people weren't doing? And I was like, oh, easy. I just found a way to make it fun. And he was like, great. So why the frick aren't you writing a book about that? And I was like, oh, I didn't realize I could write a book about how to make work fun. He was like, that's exactly what you should write it about. And apparently there's enough to write a book about that. So then when I, when I dove into all the research, I realized that, oh, this isn't just me. This is a thing that loads of people have figured out over time. There's a bunch of evidence around it as well. Now it's like anything I do where I struggle with, I try my best to make it fun. Mm -hmm. And so the gym, I'm actually becoming more consistent with it than I ever was before because I found a few different things I can do to make it a bit more enjoyable. Mm -hmm. But it's still not fully there. It's still not a thing that I would choose to do. It's a thing that I feel like I should do. And I'd love to get it into that, in, really into that zone of intrinsic motivation rather than like having to push myself into doing this. Mm -hmm. I'd love to feel as if I'm pull, pulled towards the gym. But I haven't, haven't quite figured that one out yet. I mean, it's one of those things I'm trying to think about what I hate. Now, I know you're very good at this, but for me, anything on maths mm. and accounts is what I hate. How can I try and make that more fun? Because when I look at that, I, I would not know where to start. So is it, is it, I really get the concept, but the yeah. things that I really hate, I'm trying to think, how do I make that fun? How do I make doing my accounts fun? Mm. Nice. Okay. So <laughs> I love this. So I run, I run myself through the three P's whenever I have this. So play, okay. power, and people. So the first question I would ask you is, could you approach it with more of a spirit of play? Like, what would it look like if you had to, had to have a more playful attitude to approach your accounts? What would it look like to have a more playful account? I mean, I feel like it's a very specific way I have to approach my accounts where I have to sit down, open my laptop and be very focused on numbers. Mm. And that to me terrifies me because being a dyslexic and having numbers next to me is yeah. something that I just don't get any joy from. So I try to have meetings with my accountant okay, to yeah. take that fear away. Still doesn't analyze play for me though. Mm. Okay. Let's think about this. So how much seriousness are you attaching to these accounts? Like Quite it's a, a lot, because you could go to jail if you get them wrong. Yeah, <laughs> you could. Um, I feel like I'm really trying to test you here on no, how I could stuff. do this for me. Good stuff. Okay, so you could go to jail if you get them wrong, and you have an accountant who's going to help you in the process. Yeah. And like, what do these meetings with the accountant look like? Like, how do, how do they work? They are about a 30-minute call yeah. where we go through my monthly reports, yeah. anything that I need to change, check over my expenses, mm. my kind of outgoings, all of my tax, and then what we'll kind of reiterate and go back every month okay. on these things. And you do them as calls? Could you do, do them, them in person? Calls. We could do them in person. I mean, I, I only ever meet with my accountants in person. Do you? We've got a meeting next week, and it's like once a quarter. Okay. Because I was like, I just can't be bothered to deal, to deal with a call every month. Mm -hmm. And they were like, you know what, we'll just come to you every person in, in person every three months. Mm -hmm. And it's like an hour, an hour and a half. We mm -hmm. always do it with lunch because I find that having food on the table makes dealing with accounts more like exciting in some way. It, mm -hmm. it makes it feel as if it's a social outing. Yeah, you're right. And then they'll bring the laptop, they'll bring the printouts of stuff, they'll have highlighted the relevant bits and I'll just comment on, on relevant things. Okay. So I quite enjoy looking, I, I kind of look forward to the accountant meetings because it's... It's a fun lunch. It's a fun lunch, yeah. Mm. So could that kind of approach apply that to... That could work, yeah. The other thing that I like to do on calls in particular is I like to put background music on my Zoom calls. Okay. So I'll have my AirPods in or whatever. And I'll open up YouTube and I'll find these. They've got these like Lord of the Rings ambient type soundtracks where someone has just put all the bangers from Lord of the Rings together in a three hour long playlist. And I just 
put that on as a YouTube video and like dial the volume down so it's like background music. Mm -hmm. So what that does is like the other person can't hear it because I've got it's it's only coming through my headphones. Uh, sometimes I do share sound if, if I'm with my team because they like to hear it as well. But anything that you say or that someone says with like the the concerning hobbits or like the Shire theme in the background mm -hmm. just sounds way more fun and way more epic. Mm -hmm. So whenever I have to get through a call, put on the background music, it makes it feel a little bit more fun. Mm -hmm. When it comes to calls, another thing I like to do is um, I won't take them from home sometimes if I know it's gonna if it's gonna be a boring call. So, for example, I had a call before coming here, and I went down to the local pub called the Pig and the Butcher on Liverpool Road in Islington, and I thought, you know, what, I'm just gonna order lunch here. So I took the call while having lunch with mm -hmm. a coffee and some water and the background music, and stacked up all those things to make doing the call much more fun. So it's like those are the sorts of things that I personally like to play around with when mm -hmm. it comes to if I know there is something I have to do, it's a little bit boring. So it's a little bit draining. A, can I find a way to just not do the thing? Could I delegate it to someone on my team? <laughs> but if I have to do it, then like, what are all the things I can do? Just try and approach it with a little bit more of a sense of play. Yeah. I like that. Okay, I'm going to start taking my 2024 goal to have lunch with my accountant. Nice. I'll let you know how That's that goes. That's a good goes. one. Yeah, quite fun to have lunch with. <laughs> then you can ask some weird questions to be like, so what does offshoring mean? And then they, and then they get all like, like, well, technically Hence. we can't talk about that. Or, but like off the record, we can talk about it. <laughs> it's just kind of fun. <laughs> So something that flips on play, yeah. and I don't like using this word, but I think it's really important just to touch upon this because, you know, we're having this conversation. Beginning of the year, so many, many people are thinking, you know, what have I not achieved in 2023? What do I want to achieve in 2024? And that can set us up for sometimes a failure, these high expectations that we have, right? And I know that you've written in your book that failure is to try something new. And I love that line. It's an invitation to try something new. I want to know what's been one of your hardest failures to date? The, the the word failure almost seems like I, I never think of the word failure in my mind. I know. Like, so I, it's like I'm trying to think back to what would someone else call a failure that I would have called like just part of the process or, or, one, of those, yeah. or one of those moments because I know that you've done a whole YouTube video on failure mm. last year or 2022. Yeah. Um, and I, I really loved watching that. Mm. Um, and that's why I found it really hard to kind of ask this question in that in that in that tone because yeah. I agree that a failure is always an invitation to learn something new. But I always think that from the outside, everyone must think, you know, this guy's got it all together when you do on Instagram and YouTube. Yeah. And we never really see these big failures. So I wondered, like from last year, looking back or, or just over time, mm. what has been one of the biggest things that you look back and say? Maybe it was your biggest learning experience. Sarah, I'm so sorry to cut in, but since Live Well Be Well is all about health and well-being, I need to tell you what great mental shape I'm in today. Since we started producing this podcast, it seems that you've been on quite a health journey. And seeing you blossom honestly fills me with joy. My sleep cycle's on point. My gut microbiome is in better shape than ever. I'm even doing HIIT workouts. Can you believe it? But the reason I rudely interrupted this interview is to tell you about the adaptogenic coffee that you've suggested to me earlier this week, which contains lion's mane mushroom and rhodiola. Two things I personally don't know much about. Perhaps you can enlighten me. Science shows that lion's mane mushroom is known to improve memory, mental clarity, concentration, and overall, just your brain health. And rhodiola is a powerful adaptogen known for its effects on stress levels and brain functioning. Okay, that's all sounding very exciting indeed. And I can confirm these shroomy coffees are absolutely delicious. And they come in these single sachets, which is incredibly convenient. But I don't really understand what makes them so special. So what exactly is adaptogenic coffee? The medicinal mushrooms and coffee 
are probably one of the most perfect pairings. You get all the benefits of regular coffee, which we do love, whilst minimising any side effects. So why does this happen? I know you're going to ask. Caffeine is a nootropic. It increases our alertness and our attention. But many of us will have experienced the increased levels of the stress hormone cortisol, which results in, sadly, the jitters and anxiety. This has 100% worked wonders for me this week. So where can people get them? Okay, so if you want to try these at home, we have a special discount code from the amazing brand London Nootropics, and they have three different blends to choose from. So listen up, Sam. Here is your mix. You can have Zen. It's probably the most balancing. It's great if you're caffeine sensitive. Then you've got Mojo. This is perfect for that natural boost. If you're feeling a bit fatigued, it makes a really good pre-workout because of the cordyceps and also, get this, the Siberian ginseng. And my favourite, to experience the effects of lion's mane and rhodiola, get yourself some of the Flow Blend. We've got a bit of a treat for the listeners, right? A discount code? Yes, we do, Sam. And I know that you love it because you love a discount. So all you need to do is use the code LIVEWELLBEWELL to get... 20% off at londonutropics.com. A box of each blend is only £15, so you're kind of getting a very good deal here. And subscription starts at £12 a month, delivered straight to your door. One of the biggest learning experiences was when we had to fire five people from my team on one day. This oh, wow. is like two years ago now. And that was like probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Like during the pandemic, the business was doing really well. Our core sales were going through the roof. And I thought money grows on trees, as everyone did during the pandemic. <laughs> And we ended up overhiring and I made the mistake of essentially not like getting advice from people who are more senior or more experienced than I was. I just mm -hmm. thought, oh, first principles, you know, we just need to do this, this, this and this in the team. Of course, we'll just hire another eight people mm -hmm. overnight and just make it happen. But I didn't realize that when you add people to a team, you're not just adding them to do the work. You're also adding a bunch of complexity and communication and overheads and everything kind of ground to a halt. And it was really fun because we had more people in the office and we were just like hanging out. But we weren't really getting any more work done. In fact, we were publishing like half as many videos as when I was just on my own working full time on the side. Wow. So working full time on the side, yeah. <laughs> um, it was weird. Like the more people we added, the less productive overall our business became. And then we had a course launch that did like less than half of the projected revenue. Mm. And then we were like, wait a minute. All of our financial projections for the year when we do this lunch with our, accounts, our accountants, these were all based on like actually hitting 100% of our targets. That was dumb. We mm -hmm. should have done our projections pessimistically rather than optimistically. And we were like, oh crap, we actually cannot afford to have these people on the team. Mm. And then it was like a long protracted five day period where me and a few others in the team were in a room and we're trying to figure out who was gonna make the cut and who wasn't gonna make the cut and like what roles were redundant and what roles weren't. And it was like the hardest week of all of our lives because these were all people that we were friends with and they had like great vibes and we had such a great time in the office. But at the end of the day, we had to make the decision. I had to make the decision that was right for the business. Mm -hmm. And from that point on, I was like, okay, I now understand what it feels like to fire someone. So I'm not going to hire people uh, with as much like, with, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a way higher bar for, for hiring someone mm -hmm. and letting them pass their probation period because I don't want to have to go through that again. Mm. Um, so that taught me a lot about like building a team and realizing that actually <laughs> having a bigger business is not necessarily a better thing. Well, you spoke about that actually in your failure video I hate calling it a failure video I'm gonna say you're like greatest lessons because you said when is enough enough yeah mate think about that all the time
And doing a lot of research for this and looking back on kind of previous conversations, you had quite an in-depth conversation about that with Stephen mm. on his show. Mm. And it kind of got to talking about, well, when is enough money? Mm. And I found that a really interesting conversation between you two and then listening to this part of your video. Because you kind of, in the conversation with Stephen, was still figuring out what is enough. Mm. And then when I watched it kind of a year later, you doing this one, you said actually not going above 12 people not hitting above this threshold, having mm. a lifestyle company is actually what I want. And not having this huge growth, a 50 person company mm. is not what I want. And I think it's really important actually to analyze and understand what we do want, because I think we can draw upon what we see out there to be hyper successful yeah. and then think we need that to be success. Mm. So how do you rally up what is enough right now for yeah. you? I still, I still haven't figured this out. Uh, well, I, I, in fact, I don't think there is something to ever figure out with this. I think this is, like, from having spoken to a bunch of people over over the years who deal with this this mm. problem. A, it's very much a first world problem. So let's just you know put that caveat aside. But but there's always it actually, is. Yeah. But I also want to interrupt because mm. it it can also spiral you. So it's a first world problem in, you know, how much money do I want to make? But I also think you can completely self destruct. Yeah if you don't start having a realization on this question. Yeah, I agree. And you can actually have more poor mental health problems because you're always wanting more mm. rather than understanding where that comfortableness for you sits. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think actually every everyone has this trade-off in their lives of like, do I want to, do I make a decision that helps me make more money mm -hmm. or do I make a decision that helps me be more balanced? And usually the, more, the make more money is I will take that job I don't like that pays better or I'll work harder or I'll work longer hours. And usually the balance thing involves working less rather than working more. Mm -hmm. Like the happiest doctors I've ever seen are the ones working two or three days a week. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have not met a single happy doctor who works five or six days a week. Because <laughs> it's just, you know, it's kind of hard to have a balanced and fulfilling life if yeah. you're working five or six days a week. The best advice I got this I, I got from this was from James Clear when I put this question to him on a, like a random Zoom call. He was like super gracious, helping me out with the book and, and stuff. And he said, I was like, you know, how do you do it, Matt? Like, you're chilling, you've got, got all these book sales. Why aren't you building the Atomic Habits Academy to run online courses? Why aren't you giving all these talks? Why aren't you running your own in-person conferences like Tony Robbins? Like, what's stopping you from doing all that stuff? And what he said was, I just draw a box around the kind of life that I want. And with as, as long, and if work stuff fits within that box, then sure, I'll try and maximize how much money I make. But as soon as work stuff goes outside of that box, I just have a blanket no to that thing. So for him, he knows that every morning he wants to take his kids to school. Every afternoon he wants to pick them up from school. And then once the kids are at home, he doesn't want to do anything that's work related anymore. So that limits his working hours from like 10 a.m. till like 2 p.m. That's like a four hour window. Mm -hmm. He's like, cool, if it's within that four hour window and I've told myself I'll, I'll only travel once a month to give a talk somewhere. If it's within that four hour window or if it's once a month, sure, let's try and make as much money as possible. But outside of that, <laughs> Who cares? And I, I really like that framing of it because it's not like he's he, he's not saying he doesn't want to be ambitious mm. or he doesn't want to make more money or sell more books or write more books. He's saying he wants to do all those things, but on his own terms. Mm -hmm. And so I've been thinking a lot about that. What is that? What's that box for myself? Mm. And I think for me, it's where I feel like I don't have to spend very much time in the week doing things that drain me or mm -hmm. doing things that I don't like doing and where my calendar is broadly empty to be able to learn the things that I like learning and share them on my own terms with my audience. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is like, you know, 
if, for example, I know we could make more money by just making more videos about making passive income. People love people love that shit, you know, making passive income on, online. And like, I've made a few videos about it, but I don't want to make every video I make about passive income, even though it would grow the channel faster and even though it would make more money, because that's not the sort of YouTube channel I want to have. It's just mm. not, it doesn't resonate with me internally. So I've been trying to find, like, what are the what are the boundaries of that box within which I can optimize? So what would you say is the Ali Abdul master plan from thinking about that? Hmm. Nice. <laughs> um, insofar as that there is a must plan, it's it's like I want to make sure that A, the calendar is broadly empty. Mm-hmm. B, I can follow my own energy in terms of the things I want to film. And C, that the revenue of the business and the profits of the business over time become decoupled from me just showing up and filming more videos. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing that we're trying to work on for this year. Mm-hmm. We're trying to release a um, productivity club, like an online membership type thing which is sort of like exercise classes, but for productivity. So mm-hmm. we'll host like a weekly review session and a monthly goal setting session and, a, you know, co-working sessions over Zoom so people can focus with their tasks. And I would join for some of those sessions, but not for all of them. And mm-hmm. so what we're trying to do is create a thing that can add value to people's lives and that can make us money without me having to be overly involved. Mm-hmm. That's what we're trying to figure out. Um, <laughs> but yeah, who knows if we'll get there. When I read this and just parts of what you're saying, you mentioned his name, but he you do re- well, resemble a little bit to me off is the Tim Ferriss for our work week. Mm. When everyone read that and everyone all of a sudden realized that they don't, work doesn't have to be this laborious task mm. and actually they can find how they want to organize and map their life. I feel like I remember everyone reading that 10 years ago yeah. being like, right, that's it. I'm going to make my master plan. Yeah. <laughs> but there is parts of that within how you approach your life, I think. Yeah, honestly, like that's the single most impactful book on my life. Mm. I read it when I when I was like seventeen. So what was that? Like twelve years ago now. My goodness, I'm old. Um, and it basically turned me onto the idea that wait a minute, I don't have to follow this defined default path, which is that you work really hard and then you retire when you're sixty-five with osteoarthritis in both your knees. And actually, if I could build a business that you know made quick passive income that was able to sustain a fairly modest lifestyle, now I can just do what I want. And that means I don't need to wait till retirement to be able to do what I want. I can just do it now, mm-hmm. which means I can be like, huh, what are the things that actually fulfill me? What sort of work would I actually want to be doing if I wasn't so concerned about making money or if I wasn't so concerned about status or climbing the whatever status hierarchy, etc. So thank you, Tim Ferriss, for you know offering that as a service to the world, because I think so many people can trace their own origin story back to the four hour work week. Completely. And I think something that can really, I guess overwhelm people I think that's the word that I want to use when people are thinking about starting any journey that's entrepreneurial or or kind of doing something out of the box is getting over that fear of starting it's quite a big thing that there's filled at this you know people looking at you now there's been 10 years of you building up slowly and chipping away at building to where you are now but something I really like that you said and I've heard you say it a few times is that it only takes two minutes to change your life Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Hearing that all of a sudden just kind of strips all these boundaries where you're like, okay, all of these barriers to entry when you're thinking about starting anything. And it could Mm. be a habit, it could be going to the gym, it could be increasing your health. It doesn't have to be business led. Mm. Okay. So your kind of big one today was one of them was a health, Mm. a health goal that you want to achieve. If you're looking at your health goals and you're thinking that you want to achieve a very kind of high optimal health goal, such as entering a 10K race, but you struggle to run for a couple of minutes, that can be very overachievable. And it can all of a sudden make you not want to do it. Mm. So when I heard that on what you said, it it felt very empowering. So can you talk to the listeners a bit about why it can only take two minutes to change your life? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think this two-minute thing, like there's, there's a few different levels on which it, which it applies, which is why I like that phrase so much. On one level, you know, what does it mean to change your life? Usually what it means is that you've achieved some sort of outcome that you've been working towards. And the way you achieved that particular outcome, whether it's, I don't know, starting a business or running that 10K or whatever the thing might be, the way you achieved that outcome was through taking action mm. and ideally taking that action consistently over time. But how did you decide to take the action in the first place? You decided to take the action because of a period of decision where you made the decision like, you know what, in 2024, I'm going to run that 10K or in 2024, I'm going to start that business or I'm going to write that book or whatever the thing might be. There was that that time where you made that decision. And often it takes a split second to make a decision. Some might say it takes two minutes to make a decision. And so in that sense, like the right decision can change your life because the decisions that we make about what we want to pursue and what goals we want to achieve massively changes the direction that we travel. It would be it, it's a it would be a very different year for you if, for example, you decided you wanted to run an an ultra marathon compared to if you decided you wanted to, I don't know, make a millionaire in passive income or something like like whatever the thing might be. It just takes you in radically different directions. Mm. But the point is, it's just two minutes to make that decision, and ideally, that decision then leads to action, which then leads to results, which leads to you feeling like you've changed your life. But I think the other way in which it just takes two minutes to change your life is that it comes down to this action level. Anything that we want to do requires some kind of action and requires mm. that action consistently over time. But what a lot of the research shows us is that starting an action is way harder than con than continuing to do it. So for me, if I struggle getting to the gym, the first two minutes of actually just like putting on my workout clothing and actually just leaving the house to get to the gym, that is by far the hardest part. And once I'm, you know, once I'm on the way to the gym, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm, I might as well just like get there. And once I'm there, I'm like, I might as well just like do some sets. And while I'm there, I might as well, you know, play some music or listen to a podcast or whatever and enjoy the process. But it's that initial two minute where it's like, oh, you know, it's cold, it's snowing outside. I did a workout yesterday as well. I don't really want to do this. And just making that decision in those two minutes to take action makes all of the rest follow. And so just as a general tip, you know, two minutes, five minutes, whatever, like, what I do whenever I'm struggling with procrastination from something is I will either set a two-minute timer on my phone or put on a song that's exactly five minutes long, like Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, I'll just put it on Spotify and just think, you know what, I'm just going to do this for the duration of the song. And that will get me started. And then 80% of the time, I'll just keep going with it. Mm -hmm. Do you have any key mental models that you use in those two minutes? So when you sit down to think about how you're going to reflect on a question or something that's come up, do you have any kind of key mental models that you go through? Yeah, I often, I have like a bank of journaling prompts mm -hmm. in my head and also written down that I often think about whenever I'm, so the, this is when I'm in the mode of like figuring out what to do. Mm -hmm. um, this was this was going to be what the book was going to be about. Uh, it, was, it was kind of the idea of the pilot and the plane. The pilot being kind of the mode that we're in when we're planning what we're going to do, mm -hmm. and the plane being the mode that we're in when we're just executing on it and following mm -hmm. on the following the instructions of the pilot. And I think one of the issues that a lot of people have with their productivity is that they try and do both at the same time. It's like you get to the gym, and then when you're there, you're like, "Oh, I just I need to figure out what workout to do." So much easier if you decide ahead of time, "This is the workout I'm going to do," and then you show up to the gym and you just do the thing that has already been pre-programmed in your app or in your notes app or whatever the thing might be. Similarly, I think for a lot of people, for me at least, the start of the day is when I have that mental clarity. I'm having my coffee. I'm thinking, hmm, what do I want to do today? Mm. That's when I look at my calendar and I decide, okay, cool. First two hours doing this, then I'm going to do gym session, then I'm having lunch there, then I've got a podcast, and then I'm doing a talk tonight. Sick. That's the day planned. And all it takes, again, two minutes just to plan your day in the morning. That honestly is 
the single best productivity hack for the vast majority of people. Just spend two minutes in the morning planning what your day is going to look like. Um, so when, when I'm in pilot mode, mm-hmm. I'll be asking myself some questions. I'll be looking at my calendar. And if I see that there are gaps of time where I don't have anything scheduled, I'll be thinking, what is, you know, what is the most important thing I could be doing? Uh, or like, what is my core focus for 2024 for, in like the work domain, for example? And what is the one action that I can take that would get me closest to that? So, for example, one of our goals is to build this productivity club in work for 2024. And so when I have a spare block of time in the calendar, I'm thinking, okay, what could I possibly do in that time that would get me, that would move me the closest to that goal in the shortest amount of time? Mm -hmm. And that's usually the thing that I try and do in that time. Because it's so easy to do the fake work of like, oh, you know, it'd be really cool to do some more research or whatever. But usually (laughs) doing more research is not actually the thing that's going to move you closer to your goal. It's more the actions and the doing. Something that I loved um, within your book was the people element that you brought in. It really resonated with so much of my core values. So a lot of what I've kind of built and a lot about this podcast, right, is about human connection. I love being with people, get a lot of energy from people. And I love the opening line when you said how some people can uplift your energy and how others can basically deflate it. Mm. And I think so many of us can just go through our lives unaware that this is such an important part of how we work, play, everything. You're probably listening to this show because you care about your health, both physical and mental. That's why I created Live Well, Be Well to share new ways to think about your health. I want to talk to you quickly about something that we all experience, and that is stress. Now, we can all get stressed about a host of things, even the minor things. And stress triggers the primal response. So even simply sitting in a meeting or traffic can trigger this. This brings me on to something called the vagus nerve. And it is incredibly important within the stress response and for calming our primal brains. This device I've been using is called Sensei. Now it's a wearable touch therapy device. Research has proven that the vagus nerve activation calms the brain medulla responsible for stress and anxiety. Sensei is a device which uses infrasound resonance. And when paired with the sessions in the Sensei Companion app, it helps reduce stress and improve overall well-being. In 10 or 30 minute sessions, you can feel an incredible sense of peace, reducing all those small moments of feeling stress or anxiety throughout your day. This device is genuinely a piece of modern magic and such an exciting step in modern well-being technology. It makes the perfect gift or even better, a self-care purchase. To experience a sense of calm at home, work, or even commuting with your busy lifestyle, just go to getsensate.com and use the code SARAHANN to get 10% off your first order. Something that I find really interesting is how do you, or how can you give advice to our listeners on how people can open up those networks to the ones that actually help not deflate them, to energise them? I think it's a really hard question to answer, but it's one of those ones that some people can feel very fearful of stepping into that realm of meeting new people and understanding how they can draw energy from others. So do you have any tips around that? Mm. Yeah, this this is a hard one because it's going to depend on people's circumstances. Mm. Like for a lot of people, you can't just cut out the energy draining people in your life because they're your co-workers and maybe it's not your own company. Or, or their they're family. Family members, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um the thing I would say is, in all of these contexts, figure out like what are the things under your control and mm. focus on those. So one thing everyone can control is everyone can try their best to become an energizer themselves. Mm-hmm. There's this idea that you know we're talking about this thing, relational energy, the energy we get from the people around us. And you know, organizational psychologists have done studies in companies 
where they do this sort of energy map and they ask everyone like, who are the people in the organization who are giving you energy and who are the ones draining your energy? And they find that you get these clusters of people who are like the core energizers, where everyone wants to work with them, everyone likes being around them, they get better promotions, they get better ratings from their managers. All, all of the good things happen to people who uplift the energy of others around them. Mm. And so the first question I would say to anyone listening to this is, do you think you are one of those energizing people? If the answer is no, then there are things that you can do to uplift your own energy so that you can increase the energy of the people around you. Because if the people around you feel, you know, you feel like they're draining your energy and then you're going into that negative spiral, then you become an energy drain on others. Now the good vibes people don't want to hang out with you because you're an energy because you know you're sucking their energy. So how can you like give yourself that like little push that you need to become more of an energizer? And there's like a really fairly simple ways of doing this. Um, one of my team members and I were, were talking about this, and he 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 discovered the strategy when he was working in consulting and applied it to this job as well. Of like whenever greet when, when, whenever you're greeting someone, mm. just like be more effusive than you think you should. If someone comes into the door, Sarah, oh my goodness, it's so great to see you. Like, even if I'm putting that on, as long as I'm not doing it in a sarcastic tone, that that is pretty energizing. Who who doesn't want to be greeted by someone who's like effusively greeting them? When you're starting a Zoom meeting or something, like go in with high energy. Mm. I had a meeting that I was on I was on just now where I was I was, I was thinking like, oh, it's, it's a bit low energy. Like, come on, come on, guys. So then I went on there. I just spoke up a little bit louder. It's kind of weird for the people in the pub because I was sitting in the pub, but I was like. Who cares? Like, I want to uplift the energy in the Zoom meeting mm -hmm. because there's like a meeting shouldn't be boring. It shouldn't mm -hmm. feel like it's draining everyone's energy. And the problem is if someone kind of talks softly, then the next person will, then the next person will, then the next person will. And it starts to feel socially awkward to be like, all right, guys, so let's talk about, you know, wh whatever's <laughs> happening next. And so I think the thing that we can always control is the energy with which we show up to situations mm. in. And, you know, often you'll find, you know, people who are energizers will find that other energizers also want to kind of start, start hanging out with them. Um, I think that's that's one way to do it, short of like cutting out your friends and family and coworkers already. But I think there's that realization of just who you end up spending more time with, right? Um, and I think cutting out feels really harsh, but it's about kind of reprogramming where your boundaries are. And I think it's such a big thing that sometimes we feel that we have to keep all of the, you know, all of our friendship groups or our coworkers, whoever it is around us, just to appease everyone. But actually, mm. we very rarely look at how we're feeling in that situation. Yeah. And so it's about taking, a, I feel, or, I, or I've learned, it's about taking a bit more of a self-compassionate approach towards myself and thinking, okay, who in these moments actually make me feel really good? And when we are more deflated, mm. to maybe not spend time with those people that actually do deflate us more. Yeah, it's just absolutely. about picking your battles. But I loved that you put that in your book because I think, and I don't know if you feel like this being an entrepreneur and a YouTuber, because a lot of that can feel quite lonely. Mm. And so you, it's quite hard to energize yourself every day. I don't know if you find that, but I find that really hard to energize myself all the time if you're on your own. Yeah. How do you kind of work around that? Yeah, How do honestly, you motivate yourself? I, 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 think, I think really it's all about people. Um, you know, these days I'm on a bit of a uh, digital nomad traveling thing around the world. And it would be very easy to just stay in the hotel room or stay in the Airbnb. But I know that like, if it gets to the morning after I've had coffee and, and a shower, I need to leave the house. Because mm. if I'm in the house, then I found that on the days where I'm just in the house all day, it's just, just a bit grim. And I'm like, what am I doing? Mm. Whereas so what I'll do is I'll go to the local coffee shop, go to the local pub, go to the public library, which is often free, join a co-working space, that kind of thing. Have a WeWork all-access membership. So in almost every city I'm, I find myself in, I just look at <laughs> where's the nearest WeWork. Great, let's just go there. Because there's people around, there's free coffee, it's good vibes, there's usually natural light. And I find that leaving the house 
and making sure I'm out and about somewhere where there are people around mm. is just a complete hack in terms of getting more energy from from mm. everything that I do. If it's impossible to do that, I will join like these Zoom co-working sessions. Uh, there's this thing called uh, London Writer Salon that hosts four times a day. It's completely free Zoom co-working sessions where you can just hop on and you know there's five minutes of like motivational spiel at the start by the host, and then you work for like 50 minutes, and then mm -hmm. there's five minutes of motivational spiel at the end of it. And it's kind of nice. You just see like a few hundred people on a Zoom call with you and you're just like doing whatever work you want to do. Even if I'm not writing, I sometimes join those. Um, we have those within, within our team as well. We'll just open up a Slack huddle to be like anyone. We have like a co-working channel where if anyone wants to join the Slack huddle, they'll, they'll just join. And there's something even just about working, knowing that someone else is on the other end of the line and you can see their face on mm. camera and you're doing your work, they're doing their work. And maybe you're sharing the same Lord of the Rings background music. There's something about that that feels way more energizing than just doing it solo. So that's I've, how I do it. It's an energy. Yeah. It's an energy thing, I think. Um, and I think you can get very locked in your own mind when you're on your own. But I do think we are becoming hyper-disconnected. Yeah. And that's a, it's a really big thing, I think. Well, essentially, for my productivity anyway, I find it really important. And I also think something that you lean in from other people is that you start seeing, actually, and I don't know if you find this, but you actually start seeing where people also are having their fears or where their strengths lie and where their weaknesses lie. Because I think a lot of the time we look internally at where our weaknesses are as opposed to our strengths. And a lot of that from your book that I'm reading is a lot of our procrastination lies in our fears. Mm. <laughs> yeah, procrastination is a fun one. I resonate yeah. with that a lot because being a dyslexic, I never thought I'd be a podcaster. Mm. never thought I'd be a public speaker. And actually, it's something that I had to dive headfirst into to get over. And now I love it. Yeah. But for years, and people might not believe this, but, you know, I went to speech therapy. Yeah. It was something that I was quite terrified about. Mm. And so then having people judge me on that in a room or on a show yeah. terrified me. But the more I did it, the more I started to love it. But I did put it off for a very, very long period of time just because I was scared of the reaction and probably my self-esteem being pushed down more yeah. and my ego, right? It's all kind of all interconnected. So can you talk to me a bit about procrastination? Because it's one of the biggest questions that when I put on my Instagram that you were coming on, a ton of questions came in around this. I absolutely love interviews like this one, which give you so much useful advice for your own life. And if it's helped you, this is an invitation to join my inner circle. It will give you exclusive access to a host of things, expert written articles, nutritious, delicious recipes, your own members hub newsletter, podcast plus, and also products and discounts decided by me for you. For one very small investment, it will help guide and support your health. If you use the code SAMCOMMUNITY, you can get 20% off your Inner Circle membership. Just head to www.sarahannmacklin.com. Procrastination is, is almost always an emotional problem. That's what I've realized through the years of researching this. There's kind of three things that are at the root of it. There's uncertainty, fear, and inertia. Mm -hmm. So the first step, like usually it's an emotional problem, but the first step I usually like to talk people through if I'm like coaching someone through this is, okay, tell me something that you're procrastinating on. So I, I wonder if, you know, does anything come to mind, something you're procrastinating on or something our listeners might might use as, as an example? What am I... Just sort of talk through this. What am I procrastinating? <laughs> I didn't tell you I'm procrastinating on yeah. my accounts. <laughs> okay, nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, I really struggle to 
it's a couple of things. I really struggle to kind of go to my accounts when they send me through all my reviews and actually open it and, and, and action it yep. because I'm terrified of it. Sure. And so I just don't want to look at it. Okay. And then I'll put in a call with my accountant last yeah. minute because I know I have to do it. Um, and then also like things like admin, like my car insurance. Mm. I'm really putting that off as well just because it's just a, such a laborious task to yeah. go through. Yeah, I know what you mean. So it's like... For each of these, for 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 both of these examples, there's a few things that we can we can kind of talk through. And so if I if we talk through car insurance as an example, then maybe listeners can like apply that to whatever they're struggling with. The first one is uncertainty. So usually people struggle with procrastination when they have a little bit of uncertainty about what exactly they're doing and when they're planning to do it. Mm -hmm. So what would the car insurance involve? Like, what do you actually have to do? It's one of those things, and I think, I know you said you're quite bad with forms and admin, I'm quite bad with forms and admin, and I think that's part of it, that yeah. a new quote's come up, for some reason it's ridiculously more expensive, yeah. I guess, because inflation, yeah. and so I'm like, oh, I can't just renew that, I'm going to have to go through the laborious task yeah. of finding out where I can get better car insurance, and it's just that kind of slot where I'm sitting down and I'm not wanting to do it because mm. it's not fun, so I just keep putting it off, it just, it's on my list of priorities where it is you know, it's up next week, so I really need to do it. But it's just slowly not kind of coming up on my to-do list at all. I ah. just kind of skip it. Okay, interesting. So the thing that I found whenever I have this problem is I don't, I don't like to-do lists because to-do lists give you too much of an option to reprioritize things. And to-do lists also let you just keep on adding shit to the top or the bottom of it because they're infinite. Um, if I ever want to do something, it just needs to go in the calendar. So I would ask you, do you have a, a half an hour slot in your calendar called sort out my car insurance yes <laughs> i don't but i will do after this yeah so often that's all it takes often like just putting a half an hour slot in the calendar to just do the thing is all that people need to just do the thing that's so interesting because i talk about that with health goals oh really so <laughs> yeah. that's it's i mean i feel like we're on the other side of the of the panel but it's, it's one of those things that how you're talking about just work i talk about health so food prep making sure that you put in a slot when you can actually go and buy your food mm. prep, prep and prioritize that for an hour on a Sunday takes away all the stress of you having to think about it every day or yeah. trying to find the time to do it. Yeah. So it's one of those things I'll always put in when I'm going to the gym. Nice. You'll see I've got yoga on a Monday, resistance training on a Wednesday, run on a Friday. It's like one of those things that's just built into my calendar. Yeah, yeah I've started doing that as, uh, as well. Um, that was one of the main things I realized was that that was such a needle mover for getting me to go to the gym more often. And now every week I just look at my calendar and I'm like, have I got at least three or four gym sessions in? And if not, I'm like, okay, can I move some things around or whatever? And it's like, I, I just put the slots in my calendar. Mm. So this morning, for example, nine till 11 was like a work session, actually a Zoom co-working session with my team because it's just fun. And then 11 till like 12.30 was a gym session. So I was like, where's the local gym? Went to the gym group in like Angel, did, did leg day because that was what came up next in my workout thing. And I was like, oh God, it's leg day. But Hey, it's on the workout thing. I'm just gonna just gonna do it. Mm -hmm. And I was listening to a podcast and then joining a team Zoom call for half of it, just to make the process just a little bit more fun. Mm. Um, but I think time blocking the thing and just putting it in the calendar often gets rid of most procrastination worries. When it when it comes to stuff like car insurance, when it comes to things like you know writing my first book or starting my YouTube channel, where there's mm -hmm. way more emotional hurdles to doing the thing, then just putting it in the calendar often you know is 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 not the only thing that helps. But yeah, just like what is the thing and when are you going to do it? it gives you the clarity that you need to get over the initial hurdle of procrastination. Then we come to the emotional side of it where it's like, you know, there's often some sort of fear or self-doubt that's holding us back. 
I suspect with your car insurance, it's more like just uh, it's just a bit a bit painful and a bit dull rather than, oh, my God, I'm terrified of speaking to someone on the phone. 100 yeah. percent. That's exactly what it is. It's just a, a laborious task that yeah. I'm just not wanting to do. And I just need to get my act together and do it. Yeah, quite. So it's so it's not really fear that's holding you back in that context. No. Um, with a lot of people, though, like, for example, you know, we know people who procrastinate from going to the gym because they're worried they're going to be judged by mm. people in the gym, mm-hmm. even though in reality, no one's doing any judging. But like the fear is there. It's It's so strong. And so in that context, what's really useful is seeing a therapist about it, but also journaling about it and just really putting down on paper exactly what the fear is. I'm afraid of going to the gym because I'm scared that people at the gym will laugh at me for being out of shape. And like, usually when you see thoughts written down like that, they they lose some of their power Mm. because like the rational mind that looks at it and thinks, hmm, that doesn't sound right. Like, is that really the thing I'm scared of? Like when it sounds a bit childish, like when, when I put it down on paper. So... Step one is kind of naming the fear. Step two, I find, is sort of just trying trying to do whatever it takes to reduce it. You know, one one thing I often tell myself is, uh, basically, uh, no one cares. <laughs> no one cares anywhere near as much as we think they do. Mm-hmm. When I first started my YouTube channel, it took me seven years to make my first video. You think for, for, from thinking... Seven years? Yeah, when I was in like... When I was... Uh, what was it? In like 2010... I was like, I want to be a YouTuber. And I was watching all these music YouTubers. And I every summer I was like, this is the summer I'm going to make my first YouTube video. This is the summer. No, this is the summer. This is the summer. And I kept putting it off. And I was like, oh, no, I haven't got the, the, the right camera gear. I haven't got the right microphone. It's like, oh, I don't know how to do this. And it was 2017 that I made my first YouTube video. Because <laughs> um, there was all this you know, subconscious fear of like judgment and fear of it not being good enough and the perfectionism and all that kind of stuff. And then I filmed a video. And I realized it got zero views. No one, no one, no one's, no one's going to see it. It's like when you're a brand new channel with no videos on your channel, like you're going to get zero views from the algorithm. And I didn't, I chose not to share the video with anyone. So it literally got zero views. So I, was, I realized, huh, no one actually cares. It's not like people are just refreshing YouTube and searching Ali Abdal in the hope that one day I'll start a YouTube channel and they'll see my video and laugh at it. Genuinely, no one gives a shit. Like people are all too worried about their own lives. So then I made another, you know, 2017. I think I made like 20 videos. And I started getting a few views here and there. It's like, oh, we've got 12 views this time. And, you know, they were educational videos. So the 12 people viewing them were like, oh, this is actually kind of helpful. And it was only after like my 25th video that I posted the fact that I had a YouTube channel on Facebook because I was so worried. Oh, my God, what are my friends and family going to think? I realized no one gave a fuck. No, no one cared. They were just like, cool, moved on with their day because everyone's busy. I was like, wow, <laughs> spent seven years worrying about what the people would think of my YouTube channel. And no one does. That's cool. Um, and I think in general, the more experiences like this people have in their lives mm-hmm. as they get older, the more they realize this is just true across the board. Mm-hmm. So it's very rare to meet someone in their 50s who still cares what people think of them because they've just had life go through them so much. They're like, oh, <laughs> yeah, I stopped caring what people thought about me long ago. Mm-hmm. But when we're in our teens, when we're in our 20s, early 30s, some of the time, we still have that crippling fear of like, oh, shit, what will people think of me? Mm-hmm. And no one does. So I try and tell myself no one cares. Um, and another practical thing people can do to, to overcome fear is... It's something called the Batman effect. This is something I I talk about in the book. There's a a really cool study they did on kids in like kindergarten or something. And they split them into a bunch of different groups. And one of the groups they told, you know, just do the task as normal, whatever the thing was. And one of the groups they said, imagine you're your favorite cartoon character, like Dora the Explorer or Batman, for example, and just do the thing as if you are that character. And they found that the group that was, was pretending like they were this cartoon character, they performed better on the task and they enjoyed it more. So it's like they were feeling good and they were more productive. And they called this the Batman effect. That thinking of yourself as someone other than who you are massively sort of changes the way you approach something. 
And so I do this, for example, like these glasses are fake. I don't actually need glasses because I've had LASIK a few years ago. Um, but I just kind of, you know, kept on wearing them because putting on my fake glasses, like whenever I'm on camera or anything or giving a talk, I put the fake glasses on because I step into my, so for me, the Batman is young Professor X from the X-Men series. Um, and he's like a really good teacher and like he's really good at explaining stuff and he's like a nice guy and he's got like teleconnected powers and that's pretty freaking cool. But I just sort of put the glasses on and I'm like, okay, I'm in, I'm in that mode. I'm in the mode of kind of just, you know, it's not about me. It's about what's the message I can share that would help. You know, I, th I think of any listener or whatever, a viewer as being a student. Like if mm. I were a teacher teaching some students what I've learned along the way, just sharing some ideas, what would that look like? And that to me looks like young Professor X. So I fake glasses. love this. Yeah, it's good stuff. <laughs> Wasn't there, you wrote about this. I love that you, this is now your persona. What we call it? Professor X. Professor X, yeah. From the X. Have, have you seen X-Men? No. Oh man, this this reference is lost. I, I, man, I'm not. In the but I, I feel like, like Wolverine, Cyclops. Do you know Wolverine? I mean, I I I, could, I know who like they the are, but I've, like, I've, I just it's not my type so of Professor vibe. Professor X is the guy in the wheelchair. <laughs> He's like the, the the leader of like the school for gifted and talented youngsters. He goes around the world finding these mutants. And oh he's wow! Like bring them into his school, and he's like coaching them and mentoring them. And that's you. I'd like to think so. That is you. I mean, I'm <laughs> yeah. now literally going to go home and watch X Men. And there's Magneto, and like you're lost in oh, me. Oh wow! Totally lost in me. I've never met someone who. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> you have now, <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, I will now go home and watch it. It's I'm, really good. And I'm now going to think of you. And nice. I love that you. I mean, I have a similar. I don't have a persona per se, but I use it in the way I dress. And so when I'm at home, yeah. I'll just be in my slacks. Yeah. Whereas when I want to interview somebody, or even if I need to be at home and be hyper-focused and I'm writing, mm. I will go and change my clothes. Sometimes I'll change them twice, two, nice. three times in a day to embody that persona yeah. that I want to be like. Whereas I know that when I'm dressing in my yoga gear, mm. I'm not that creative person that I want to be. And so for me, I guess that probably fits in what you're trying to say. Yeah. But is, was it Adele that you said that, had Beyonce as her persona. Yeah, so Beyonce and Adele have both had different like alter egos that they That's that it. they use to get on stage. So Beyonce's I think was called Sasha Fierce, and I think that was one of her earlier uh, early albums, because in Beyonce, in early on in Beyonce's career she got a lot of like stage fright and was like I don't know getting into her head too much. So she created this like alter ego called Sasha Fierce, and she's like on stage, that's who I am. Mm. And then she ended up shedding it after a few years because she didn't need it anymore. Um, but Adele also had like really bad stage fright back in the day. So she took inspiration from Beyonce and made a character called Sasha Carter, which was a, an amalgamation of Beyonce's Batman, Sasha Fierce, and also this country singer called June Carter, who apparently was famous. So Adele was like, cool, on stage, I am this amalgamation of like this inspirational figure that Beyonce used and also this really cool country singer. And that was who she was on stage. She was like, I'm not Adele anymore. I'm Sasha Carter. And it just changes the way you approach stuff. So for anyone struggling with procrastination, mm. go and make your alter ego. Make your alter ego, yeah. Make your avatar. That's the one. Once the thing's on your calendar, it's got to be on the calendar it's first. It's got to be on the calendar. <laughs> that's, the first, that's the basic one. <laughs> and then if you're still struggling, put it, you know, find your Batman. And then if you're still struggling from that, do the thing for five minutes and tell yourself that's all you're going to do. And put on some... Lord of the Rings background music. Yeah, or Pirates of the Caribbean, or have you seen Pirates of the Caribbean? I have seen okay, Pirates. Nice. It's got <laughs> Johnny Depp in. Hundred percent, I've seen Pirates. Yeah, of the Caribbean. just anything that makes you feel uplifted. It just makes the thing a little bit more fun. I, I mean, I think I do think we really underestimate, and I wrote this in my members hub newsletter today around our different senses. We forget about sound, how that affects us emotionally. We Ooh, forget yeah. about touch. We forget about scent, mm. and all of these things can really help us. For me, 
actually having scent is one of the biggest things that I use to help Ooh, focus. How so? I react really, really well to having candles and essential oils all put over my wrists and oh, my temples. Okay. And I remember when I was doing my biochemistry um, exam, and I was so terrified about not remembering. I think the thing about dyslexics that I was told is that we have a much shorter ledge than other people. So we can't retain our information as well. So for me, I can do as much studying as possible. There's only so much that's going to fit on that ledge. Hmm. You'll have a much larger ledge than I will. So I've got to be really strategic about what I decide to intake in the information before an exam. Because essentially it's about memory. Hmm. you know. And if I can remember it... Yeah. Rosemary is a really good essential oil for helping you bring back certain memories. So when I was studying in certain parts, I would always have fresh rosemary and scent around me. And then I would take it into my exam and then I would smell it during the exam. And that helps bring back that memory. This is I didn't know this was a thing for scent. This is a thing. So they, they, they've done a weird study um, where they got people to prepare for a test. Um, and then they got another group to prepare for the test underwater. Like this was a group of divers. And they were just like, prepare for the test underwater. So they had like waterproof, whatever. I'd love to see that. Study. And then they got them to do the test. And then one group did it on land and the other group did it underwater. And they found that if you studied underwater and did the test underwater, or if you studied on land and did the test on land, you performed better than if you, than if you studied underwater and did the test on land or studied on land and did the test underwater. Like the, the whole theory was that if you can mimic the conditions of, of the test in the same way that you're studying or preparing for the test, you're more likely to perform. So when you have rosemary on your table while studying, and then you also have it during the test, that's like queuing up all these funky parts of the memory. Yeah, all these scent cues. Yeah. Nice. I think, yeah. So there we go. I'm that's... going to do that with scent. That's a good idea. Do. Yeah. And like loads of candles. I, you know, environment's a huge thing, but mm. scent, I find, is really, really important. So you might see why I'm doing this, because it's like parts of my memory <laughs> from everything I've researched. But... Coming on to that as well, like the emotional aspects, I do find it, I mean, it's something that I'm very passionate about, mental health and understanding this. The 10-10-10 rule. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love this. Mm. Talk to us about how, because it's a lot about reframing. Yeah, this is a, I think the, this is a classic thing they teach in, in therapy in various schools where it's like, if, you, if you're worried about something, you sort of ask yourself, you know, I, I like to think 10-10-10, will this actually matter in 10 minutes? Okay, maybe it will. Will it matter in 10 weeks? Will it matter in 10 years? There's almost nothing that we can do that will matter in 10 weeks or in 10 years. Maybe it'll matter in 10, in 10 minutes. But I, f I find that just like running through those helps me realize, you know, even like, for example, this New York Times best set of fi fixation that I had that was stopping me from like making progress on my book. Will this matter in 10 weeks uh, to 10 weeks afterwards? Yeah, maybe, maybe it will. Will it matter in 10 years? Like no one cares what was on the New York Times bestseller list in like 2014. Like who, who gives a toss? Mm. Like no one cares. It's like, oh, okay. That relieves some of the pressure. Because mm -hmm. I think a lot of procrastination and distraction and issues with productivity stem from the pressure that we place on ourselves. If the stakes are very high, you know, this is, we, we talk about this in the play chapter. If the stakes are high, it's very hard to feel playful about the thing. Mm -hmm. If the stakes are high, we get a stress response, an anxiety response. We get the adrenaline. We get the cortisol. All of these things cause us to contract and like, I need to focus on this one thing. And that sort of tunnel vision doesn't actually improve your performance in most things in life. Mm. One of the theories that the book is sort of based around is, um, is a theory called the broaden and build theory. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea there is that essentially when we experience positive emotions, it's it, it like expands our scope of actions and it expands our vision and our awareness and if you sort of imagine back in caveman times um if 
the caveman and their crew were feeling positive emotions, life is good. They're pretty safe. There's no lion about to attack them. There's no neighboring tribe about to attack them. And so they evolve naturally to explore their surroundings a bit more and to be friendly with each other and build those social resources and stuff. But if they're experiencing negative emotions, stress or anxiety, that's because there's some kind of threat, some kind of lion or some kind of attacking tribe. And in that context, you don't want that caveman to be thinking, hmm, let me explore my surroundings. You want them to be thinking, I need to fight, flight or freeze. I just need to do this like one, one or two series of actions. Um, so that's the, the, the kind of mind that we have. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, the world, the world has changed, but our mind hasn't really changed with it. To the point that when we experience negative emotions now, mm. we still think of it as our survival is being threatened. Mm -hmm. So if you're feeling immense pressure with a work task or something, or like, oh, I've got to give this presentation and like my colleagues might laugh at me or whatever, that to the mind feels like it's a threat to your survival. Mm -hmm. And in that context, you might have a freeze response of like, I can't bring myself to do this thing. And that's where a lot of procrastination comes from. Mm -hmm. um, and so whatever we can do to reduce the stakes and to remind ourselves, no one cares. It's not going to matter in 10 months or 10 weeks or 10 years or whatever the thing might be. Let me just get started. I'll see how it goes. Let me treat it like an experiment rather than a big serious thing. Mm -hmm. Let me be less serious and more sincere. Like there's all of these different reframings that we can use to just lower the stakes a little bit. Because mm. even even when it's life and death, right? Like, you know, I've been in operating theaters quite a lot where a patient is bleeding out. Literally, literally there's a life-saving operation going on. They still have background music. They still crack jokes like the mm. surgeons and the nurses and the staff and all of that stuff because they realize that even when life and death is on the line, there is a sense of lightness that actually improves your performance mm -hmm. rather than takes away from it. Mm -hmm. And so I just try and try and remember that whenever I'm sort of struggling with something, whether it's procrastinating or feeling I'm losing focus, it's like, let's just reduce the seriousness of this thing in my mind. There's a lot around that, though, on self-kindness to yourself, right? Yeah. And forgiveness. Yeah. And being imperfect is to be human, right? And that's what falls under self-compassion. It's those three things. Do you ever think about self-compassion during kind of all the built of success and kind of, I guess, your next 10 years of your goals you've got ahead on how that sits within it? Because I know you, you mentioned mental health there. And one of the things that I loved in your book that you wrote was the greatest cause of burnout isn't exhaustion. It's low mood. So something that resonates with me and I read that was self-compassion mm. sits at a lot of that mm. around acceptance acceptance of that wasn't perfect yep. acceptance of that went wrong yep. self-kindness yeah right how you would probably say to me sarah if you're going to write your book you know be kind to yourself you don't need to be doing all of these things as opposed to what i would say to myself is i need to be doing this i need to make sure i'm prepping this much i need to make sure i'm going to get a bestseller and all that pressure then goes on me as opposed to i wouldn't say that to a friend it's mm. not how i would speak to you yeah. writing your book so so much within that sits of self-compassion yeah, we were talking about this before before recording. I, lo I love this like self-compassion idea. It's mm. it's not a phrase I think about very often, but like now that you're mentioning it, there's a few things that I found over the years that really help, which, which I guess tie into self-compassion. Well, one of them is I realized that often at the end of a workday or at the end of any kind of day, I would have a tendency to sort of beat myself up that I didn't mm -hmm. do enough. Mm -hmm. Oh, I didn't wake up early enough or I didn't get enough sleep or I didn't like do this enough or oh, I didn't actually manage to get to the gym or I, I did go to the gym, but I skipped the final set of the freaking leg press or whatever the thing was, I could have been more productive. And I realized after a while that this is just completely pointless in that the day is over. I can't change what's happened in the day. So me choosing to beat myself up about it is literally just adding pain to my life for no benefit. 
And I was like, oh, no, but it's important because it makes me more motivated the next day. It's like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> I'm not motivated by like the stick or by kind of beating myself up or whipping myself for not having done enough yesterday. Mm-hmm. That's like a very, it's a, it's a form of motivation called introjected motivation. We, we, can, we, we can go into that. But it's a very kind of, it's not a very feel good form of motivation. It's mm-hmm. a very kind of like, kind of s- drill sergeant in the army trying to shout at yourself, you for like, you know, stop being a pussy and just like fucking do the thing. It's like all of all of those kind of narratives were in my mind for some reason. <laughs> and I found that they just really weren't helpful. Mm. And if I just forgave myself and just thought, you know what, I've done what I can for the day. That's okay. Tomorrow is a new day. Then my motivation the next day was actually stronger because I felt like I'd already won the previous day. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's, it's really hard to come back from a loss. If you feel so like hard. you're losing, then there's so much effort to be like, oh God, okay, now I'm really going to win. And you get all these stories of like, you know, sports teams and like wars and stuff. It's like, you know, we're in the middle of a battle and we are losing and now we can give it our all and stuff. But it's so much easier to be on a winning streak. It's Mm -hmm. like, oh, we're 3-0 up. (laughs) Great. We can have more fun with this. Let's just keep going. Yep, 4-0, 5-0. Great. We're having a great time. Life is good. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to come back from a losing streak. And we create these losing streaks for ourselves by Mm. flagellating ourselves with all this self-talk around like, you didn't do enough or you weren't enough or why'd you screw that up, you freaking idiot. And Mm -hmm. all of those things. And, and I guess I, I realized it was counterproductive, so I stopped doing it. But I guess that's that's what self-compassion looks like. <laughs> it is. It's, it's, it's basically to know that you're imperfect. That is yeah. to be human, right? Whereas so much, I think, about what is now projected in society is the perfect lives. Yeah. You know, everyone's always succeeding. Mm. And I think that already creates such a huge conflict within oneself. And so to actually kind of reflect and step back from that and actually give yourself self-kindness. If you had to look back on yourself five years ago and see when you are today, you'd be hyper impressed. You'd be like, I am flying. <laughs> yeah. Whereas I'm sure at the moment there's these things in your mind that are niggling of thinking, oh, I should have done this and I should have done that and I really wanted to achieve X. And there might not be, but kind of our natural domain is to go more towards the things that are pessimistic than yeah. optimistic. Mm. You might be more likely to remember the things that went wrong in your day than things that went right in your day. One of my, well, so one of the habits that I found most difficult to stick to, but it's just been so transformational, is doing like a weekly review. So I did my... I love them. Oh, mate, weekly reviews. So I, I did mine, mine for this week yesterday, because yesterday was a Sunday. And the first question is, um, like, review, like, what were my accomplishments from the last week? And I thought about it. I was like, hmm, I don't really know. And then I looked at my calendar and I was like, oh, I was in New York last week. And then I went on Good Morning America and that was fun. And then I had this meeting with my team, which was really good. And then I had this call with a friend from Twitter who turned out to be really nice. And then I had dinner with Ani and Yusuf. And then I had, you know, one more dinner with friends. Then I had lunch with my publishers. And I had this. And I came up with a list from like 28 things that happened like last week that I just completely forgotten about. And it took the weekly review for me to be like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We hit the New York Times. We hit the Sunday Times. I actually completely forgot about that because we're so used to like... The you next know, thing. The next thing or like focusing on the negative or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's so weirdly hard to celebrate the wins. And there's always wins in every week, even if it's not like, a yeah. <laughs> I One of my biggest things that um, since meeting my partner that he's made me initiate is celebration of every small win. Nice. So everything. And there might have been something where something came in at 11 p.m. Mm. And he will make sure that we'll do something in that moment to register that's happened. Mm. And sometimes I'm like, I'm exhausted. I don't really want to. And he's like, no, because if you don't do it now, you'll forget about it. And I think that's so important that it's really changed my mindset to actually take that moment to be grateful and aware that I've done something that's quite good. Yeah. 
as opposed to waiting and going, oh, wait, what was it? Oh, yeah, I think I did that. Because you never have the same response emotionally as you do in that moment. Yeah. Oh, man. There was a... a, Last year, um, I happened to spend time with a guy called Bill Perkins, Mm -hmm. who's written a book called Die With Zero. It's a book about how to make the most from your money in your life and stuff. This guy's like a billionaire. He made his fortunes in, like, oil or something and then super, super rich. And... He is like uh, he he describes himself as one of the few rich people he knows who are rich and also happy because most people who are very rich are seem seem to be pretty miserable apparently. But I, I was so I I asked him you know what are some things that you would go back and tell yourself and he kind of said two things. He said thing number one I would tell my my younger self is get a relationship therapist even if you think you don't need it a fucking relationship therapist will completely change your life so go get a relationship therapist. So I was like. Okay, cool. So now I have a relationship therapist. Can I and, just say, yeah. that's how we connected. Was you it? might not remember this. So you put a tweet out. <gasps> oh, yeah. Saying. Yes. Does that anyone was, know a good therapist? That was in the aftermath. That was literally like that day. <laughs> <laughs> I was in Austin. I was in that day. <laughs> no way. That's how we connected. Yeah. And uh, I said, I've got some amazing therapists and sent, sent them to you. Yeah. That was so good. Thank you. That was the moment. I spoke to one of your people and then it turns out she was an individual therapist, not a relationship therapist because... A bit so different, to, yeah. but hopefully she, <laughs> yeah, she knows a lot of yeah. different people. Yeah, so yeah, good. she's amazing. So like that was literally like, like June last year, and I was like, I tweeted this thing because I was like, I need a relationship therapist. So that was like thing number one that he said. <laughs> so thank you for that. That was very kind. And thing number two that he said was, um, I would tell myself to celebrate more wins. Hmm. So now what he does, any with his team or his family or anything, anytime something good happens, it's just an excuse to like take people out for lunch or like throw a party or like anything, even even if it's small. Because what he said is that he's in his 50s now and he's got like kids and things. And he's like, yeah, you know, what you realize is that the time is always going to go by. Mm-hmm. And if you don't celebrate the wins, then like, what's the point? Well, what is the point? Yeah. And that is exactly what my partner said to me. Mm. And now it's really changed my initiative. Yeah. Because you might not celebrate it a week later. Yeah. You need to go and your book. It was today, right? You found out. Today, Sunday Times. Yeah, like two days ago, New York Times. Yeah. Okay. Did you, <laughs> you do anything to celebrate? To celebrate? Not really, actually. You need to celebrate that. Celebrate that. How often in your life are you going to get that again? Yeah, that's true. Shit, you're right. It's really important. (laughs) I was just like onto the next thing. Yeah, flying back to London. Yeah, we 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 got a podcast, doing a talk, etc., etc. It is therapy because I find it. I find you hugely inspiring for a huge amount of reasons. It's not just one thing. Like for so many things on how you've started your company. You know your dedication. You know, there's so many things that people look up to you for. I find you as an inspiration. But something that I really find inspiring is your vulnerability. And I don't mm. know how many people have said that to you before, but you are incredibly vulnerable. Mm. And I think it's hard to sometimes be vulnerable with ourselves, let alone to do it publicly, build a company publicly, talk about that, talk about your loss, talk about your failures. And so I think that's hugely inspiring. Oh, thank you. And so I really wanted to bring on the topic of therapy because yeah. that is how we connected. Yeah. And... I loved that you tweeted that first of all. Hmm. Just seeing that was was one of the things that made me want to reach out to you. Oh, no way. Okay. Yeah. I just tweeted I it without like, really thinking. I was like, but I was like, <laughs> let's I get recommendations. The, the amount of people that message me yeah. that go, I'm asking for a friend, but do you know a good therapist? Hmm. And that's even just a direct message to me that, you know, and I really yeah. understand the barrier to why people feel ashamed around it. There's huge stigma in society, sadly, still. But you just openly tweeted it to your massive platform and I was like I have so much respect for you and I thought I'm going straight on in with as many recommendations as I can find and hopefully help you and navigate to find a good relationship therapist I mean so first of all thank you just for being so vulnerable no thank you for messaging me (laughs) and having that but 
what was your objective and what's kind of been the outcome since you've started that therapy? Because... Oh, man, yeah. Oh, I love this topic. I don't think I've ever talked about this. This is good. Um, so I then, after that conversation with Bill Perkins and your recommendation, so I got a relationship therapist and also an individual therapist. So the relationship therapist has been like super, super, super interesting because like my girlfriend and I weren't really having anything that we would describe like problems in the relationship. Mm. But I just heard the recommendation where it's like, Bro, if you want to, you know, the relationship is like the most important thing in your life. Therefore, why would you not have a therapist slash coach to guide you through that? Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that's so true. Like I, I say this to people when it comes to business, that if you're running a business, you're just dumb to not have a business coach. Because mm-hmm. like, why would you just not have a coach? They just save save so much time and, and money <laughs> by mm-hmm. virtue of the fact that they have seen the mistakes you're going to make and will stop you from making those mistakes. Mm-hmm. And so I was immediately sold on the relationship therapist. Um, and essentially... The strategies that we've learned during those sessions still come back. Like sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll mention it during during our conversations where it's mostly around communication. Sounds weird to say. No, it's it doesn't. Like, it's the biggest yeah. barrier. No, I think I mean, it's the biggest true. problem in relationships is communication. Yeah, we, we, we saw this relationship therapist in person on like Harley Street or something. And, and then we kind of moved to a guy over Zoom. But the guy in person was really good. He was, um, his whole thing was like, he would, he would give, he had this like little stick. You know, if I, I, I use the pen as a, mm-hmm. and it was like, okay, now, uh, when one of you is going to speak, so you get the speaking stick. And so if I was speaking and we were in a relationship therapy session, I'd be speaking and be like, okay, so when you did X, you know, it kind of made me feel blah, 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 blah. And literally after 10 seconds, he would stop me and he would be like, okay, it's your turn. What did you hear him say? And then you would say, oh, the thing I heard you say was blah, 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 blah. You're like, is that true? I'd be like, well, yeah, 80%, but actually you misunderstand me because whatever. Continue. And it was like the conversation, he interrupted the conversation so many times just to get the other person to reflect back what they were hearing. And it was stupidly helpful. Initially, I was like, come on, like, this is a bit excessive. But just he- just hearing firsthand the Chinese whispers that were going on, mm. even between the two of us, where I was saying something where she got the wrong idea or she said, said something where I interpreted it in the way that was not that she didn't intend. We were just like, bloody hell, like, we should do this more often. So now the the strategy that we do sometimes is if it's if it's a sort of conflict type conversation, one of us will often pause to be like, "Hey, you know, just so I just so I know that I've explained myself properly, can you uh, would you mind reflecting back like what you heard me say?" And this is a strategy that that we used to use in medicine as well. If you're sort of breaking bad news to someone, or you're trying to explain something really complex, after a while you say, "Hey, just so I can check that I've explained things correctly, can you can you tell me what you understand from this conversation?" And initially you think, "Oh, I can possibly say that. Like it's patronizing. Like why would they want to repeat themselves?" And then the patient replies, or the <laughs> spouse replies, and you're like, whoa, yes, that's actually spot on. Or actually, no, there's, there's a crucial piece that's missing. So that was just one of the strategies that we came up with, that we, well, we didn't come up with, that we went through in therapy that was super helpful and continues to be helpful to this day. I mean, it's really interesting, right? Because sometimes you could even have that conversation with yourself. And then that's why it's because you can sometimes take what you want to see and interpret. Mm. And it's so important when you're, I mean, you're two essentially completely different humans coming together with... So much baggage on each side. I don't want to say so much baggage, like all this trauma, but it's, you know, you've both had your own lives, which yeah. has drawn your own inspiration and your own traumas and your own scars. Yeah. And then you're kind of coming together. And that's where that communication, I guess, is so essential. Yeah. Because if somebody doesn't feel seen, that's when a lot of conflict can start happening. Because oh yeah. there's a lot of frustration there, mm. you know? And so I think being seen is one of the biggest things in a, in a relationship. That's the that's one. That's so important. Like the other thing that we found super helpful was uh, talking talking on the level of needs. Like, oh. you know, it's like, sure, I felt blah, blah, blah. 
but like and previously we would say you know i felt blah 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 when you did that i was like okay cool but then the level up is i felt blah 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 when you did that and the need that i have that i felt was unmet in that situation is my need to be to feel connection or my need to feel freedom or my need to feel love and it's like oh okay and then it's like okay what might i do that would help meet that need mm-hmm. so with my girlfriend for example one thing um that happened fairly early on in in our relationship is she felt disconnected because i wouldn't hug her when we when we would see each other in public mm-hmm. and for me like the sort of cultural somewhat conservative background i was raised in it's like you never see like you know husband and wife or like partners like hugging each other like at a in a public like for goodness sake that's so not classy or whatever um it just wouldn't be done and i was like oh shit like for her it's like that's a you know important form of connection and then i had to decide it's like is this a thing that i would like to do mm-hmm. to help my partner feel more connected or would i like to actually be like you know what this is this is not for me and i decided actually i'm not that wedded to my cultural conditioning on on that front and i'm very happy to give her a hug when we meet and now we hug when we meet and it's kind of nice and i just didn't realize that that was a thing but it took her explaining to be like hey actually you know it would help me my meet my need for connection if you would give me a hug and i was like oh is that all it takes perfect <laughs> of course i can do that it's easy enough have you heard about love languages oh of course yeah <laughs> absolutely i'm like <laughs> love that stuff. touch yeah <laughs> yeah hers is touch and quality time What's Mine yours? Acts of service. <laughs> If someone makes me a cup of tea, I'm just like, oh, so good. <laughs> so thank you for making me that cappuccino. Earlier. But I, yeah. you're welcome. <laughs> But I think that's actually a really key thing in a relationship. Mm. Understand? That's another form of communication. Yeah. It's just your love and how you communicate. Yeah. It's so essential. Yeah. Oh, on that note, just like I just keep talking about couples therapy. Um, one of the things that that really came out of, of couples therapy as well was how different people have different. essentially different thresholds for connection. So, uh you know, my partner would be saying things like to to the therapist, you know, I I feel like Ali doesn't love me because he doesn't dot dot dot. And he'd be like, no, no, hang on, like, you know, feeling like Ali doesn't love you. That's that's you know, there's there's too much that goes into that. Like, what specifically is the need and what specifically is the way that 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 is not being met? And she would say, well, I have a need for connection and I feel like the fact that he's just content to chill on his laptop when we're in the same room means that you know to me that kind of need for connection's not met and i feel like he doesn't like me because of it because like i want to connect with him and then he asked me ali what does it take to make you to meet your need for connection and i was like oh man i feel so connected when we're on the laptop together and on the same <laughs> wifi we're both in the same room like maybe we've got the, we've got some background music and we're both doing our own thing on our respective laptops i just feel so connected because it's it feels like that's that's such profound acceptance because it's like we don't need to do anything we're just together and we're doing our own thing and life is good And he was like, "See, you know, he feels very connected when we're both on your laptops, but you clearly don't. So like, what are the things he could do to help you feel more connected?" And she was like, "Well, in that context, you know, maybe every half an hour or so he just comes up and like pats me on the head or like, you know, asks me how I'm go how my work is going." I was like, "Oh, is that it? I can do that. <laughs> That's so easy." <laughs> so I make it a point every half an hour just like get up, sort of uh, ruffle her hair a little bit and be like, "Hey, how's it going?" I was like, "Please don't pat on her head. Yeah, yeah. Please give her a kiss." <laughs> <laughs> It's like a dog. Yeah. How are you doing there? <laughs> <You're like, laughs> stroke the hair a bit, kiss on the forehead, you know that kind of thing. And, and that means she can need make you a cup of tea. Yeah. Acts of service. Exactly, that's the one. I mean, that is kind of understanding that. And I think, you know, it's important for couples therapy, but it's important I think in any relationship. Mm. I guess understanding that about the people around you, about the needs with your best friends, your family, all of those things. Yeah. Kind of fall under the same umbrella in that sense. Mm. Yeah, my 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 CEO coach actually has a good way of of doing this. He one of the pieces of homework that he sent me in our first session. He was like, "Okay, and you should make a list of all the key relationships in your life. So like girlfriend, brother, mum, grandma, sister-in-law, you know, that kind of thing." And 
the 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 first question was one that I had to answer, which which was, uh, what is one thing that if if I did more frequently or more often or better would improve the relationship? I was like, hmm, okay. So I thought about it, and for each of these relationships, I came up with something that if I did more often or better, it would improve the relationship. And then the harder piece of homework was to ask that person to be like, hey, Tamor, my brother, you know, it's going to sound weird, but my CEO coach is making me do this. I had to do all the, all the caveats so I'd feel better about it. You know, just as a thought experiment, what is one thing that I could do if I did more often or better would improve our relationship? And he was like, huh, interesting. I guess we could get back to doing our podcast weekly. I was like, cool, let's do that. <laughs> and we still haven't, <laughs> haven't managed to do it weekly, but like, it was useful to know that. Yeah. And I think that's a very tangible, practical thing. You know, this guy coaches CEOs of like huge ass companies and also me. And he's found that like, usually any problem in the business, in anyone's business can be traced down to a problem in their personal lives. And if we just ask the people who are closest to us, what's one thing I could do to make our relationship better? No one asks that, but it leads no to some pretty interesting that. answers. Well, because it can bruise your ego. Yeah. Feel scary. It feels terrible. It's so vulnerable. Yeah. And you've really got to look at yourself. I mean, without going into having to tell me what everyone said, was there, did you see a common denominator that came up there? Were you kind of like, this is kind of what a lot of people are saying the same thing, or was it all different? Yeah, no, it was all quality time. It was all quality time. <laughs> yeah. It was all basically like, um, in, in, my, in, in my partner's case, it was more appreciation because mm-hmm. we already spent enough quality time together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was like, I want you to give me praise and appreciation or like compliments or something more often. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, okay. Like, what do you mean? Yeah, I can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but with all the other relationships, it was like, yeah, quality time. Mm. I realized that like, you know, when with, with, a, with a lifestyle where there's a lot going on, it's so easy to neglect the important relationships by not giving them the time that they do, that, mm. that, that they warrant. Um, because there's always, there's always another interview to do or another talk to give or another video to make or another dot, dot, dot to sort out. And the thing with work is that work is like this black hole of like, like the the problem is like I I I wonder if you have this as well. When you're doing something that you really like, it's more of a problem to stop doing the thing than it is to keep doing the thing. A hundred percent. Like I guess a lot of people, at least a lot of people in my audience, really struggle with their work because they're not mm. doing something that they love, mm. and so they're always like, "How do I stop? How do I stop procrastinating?" Mm-hmm. And I guess for me, it's more like, "Now, how do I actually get myself to stop working and go and hang out with my family?" Because mm-hmm. like. Otherwise, my default would be to just keep on working because it's just so mm-hmm. fun. Yeah. I think I started thinking about this a lot about two years ago. And I think I started thinking about this a lot before and then didn't really have the emotional capacity to understand it. When I was living in New York, when I was in my early 20s, when I was completely disconnected from my life, I think back in the UK, you know, I was kind of yeah. in this whirlwind of the high fashion industry and, you know, success and at early age, and my gosh, I've got all this financial income and I can do what I want and I've got all this freedom. And recently I've started to really think about actually how do I want people to think about me when I'm 90? Mm. What do I want to have achieved? And I actually asked this question to Shane Parrish, who came on the show, because he asks this to all of his guests. And I was finding it really interesting to kind of reframe it back to him. Um, and it is one of those things that when you're 19, you're sitting on a bench. What do you want the people around you to say about you? And mm. it entwines really well to that question of where you ask people what they want more from you. But how would you want people to remember you when you're 19? What would you want mm. people that loved you to say about you? Mm. <laughs> it's funny you mention this. Uh, I actually do an exercise every few months, which is where I write out my own obituary. Um which is often fun and interesting to do. 
And I ran a workshop online yesterday for everyone who pre-ordered my book where we kind of wrote, everyone's a bit, everyone wrote their obituary. Wow. And the Zoom chat was just like, people were like, oh my God, I'm crying. Like I'm sobbing. I've never done this before. Like, so one thing I would encourage anyone listening to this to do is, you know, if you're interested in figuring out what to do with your life, thinking about what you'd want people to say at your funeral or what mm. you'd want written about you when you're dead. It's actually a really powerful way of finding that North Star 100%. and saying, am I, am I on track? So for me, you know, I, I think of it as sort of like relationships and then work because it's like, you know, mostly the, the, the thing I'd want people to say about me at my funeral or when I'm 90 is, you know, he was really warm and friendly and humble and kind and mm. was always there for his family and for his friends and the people that and, and, the, and the people who needed him. And even though he had all this like whatever success flying around the world and doing all that crap, he always stayed connected to his family and to the people around him who he loved and who loved him. And if that can be the thing that people say about me when I'm 90 on a bench or when I'm dead, then I'd be like, nice. That was mm. a life well lived. That leads me into my final question, which I ask all of my guests. And I'm wondering if it's going <laughs> to... I wonder if it's going to be the same answer. But I want to know, Ali, what does live well, be well mean to you? There's a question I often think of, which is like, if I won the lottery, how much would it change about how I'm spending my time? Mm. And I want the answer to that question to be as close to nothing as possible. Like, if I win the lottery and I wouldn't change a thing about how I spend my time, that means that I'm really living true to what I want to do rather than chasing money or status or fame or all those things, I hope. And so you, I, I, I often think about that to be like, what's the gap between the lottery winning version of myself and the current version of myself? And like, how do I bridge that gap? If I won the lottery, would I care so much about what people think probably not if I won the lottery would I would I make videos about things I want to make videos about or would I make videos about things I want the algorithm that the algorithm will do well on probably I'd make videos about what I want to make videos about if I won the lottery would I continue to run online courses probably not oh shit I'm running online courses at the moment okay let's let's think about that it's like you know if I won the lottery would I take care of my health yeah of course I would okay cool <laughs> that, that's good and just that specific question of if I won the lottery, would I dot, 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 helps me get to a place that I think kind of congregates on this idea of live well, be well. Mm. And so what would you do if you won the lottery? Broadly what I'm doing now, honestly. Um, I'd still make videos about things that I, I learn and find interesting. I would still write books. Um, I would probably do less online course type stuff that I'm doing, but I'm, I'm kind of winding that stuff down anyway. Mm. And I would do more teaching in real life like events and stuff mm. and I asked myself this question like at the start of the year when I was setting my goals for 2024 and I was like what's stopping me from doing more real life events nothing let's just do them so now it's the thing that we're working towards for this year because I haven't really done many real life events but mm. I went to a Tony Robbins seminar the other like last I couple of months that. ago I was super inspired it's like freaking sick mm. and I was like whoa it'd be so cool to do, to do like a weekend workshop on like goal setting or like a weekend workshop on productivity or something like that and it's like you can have like little yoga breaks and meditation breaks and like get speakers in. It would be so much fun. Ali, thank you so much for coming on to Live Well, Be Well. It has been so much fun. I want to make sure that people continue to buy your book. But please, can you, I mean, I feel like everyone should know where you are now, but please just shout out any handles where you want people to follow you. Oh, sure, yeah. Listeners. So you can search my name, Ali Abdal, which will be on YouTube and all the other social platforms. Um, or you can click whatever links there are in the show notes or the video description. Um, and you can check out the book it's called Feel Good Productivity and it's available everywhere that books are sold 
Thank you so much. It's Thank been you. so helpful. And um, I know it's going to be really, really helpful to many listeners. Thanks. I appreciate it.